Good morning. As they were singing that this morning, I was thinking of a uh, time going by. There was a professor, I think at Princeton Seminary, his name was Robert Dick Wilson. Have you ever heard the name? Maybe one or two of you. Robert Dick Wilson was one of those individuals that learned about 55 different languages. Brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. And uh, he learned mostly in the Old Testament, but he learned 55 languages and more because he wanted to be able to study the scripture in all its fullness and read everything he possibly could read about it. So this is a guy that is way up there intellectually. And at the end of the day, his conclusion was this. This is the greatest truth ever written. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that a great story? And uh, as we come today, we want to we begin to focus with you. We're back in a series on bold. And you remember the B stood for brave, the O for opportunities that God gives us. And I think as you'll be brave and say, God, use me, and pray each and every day for God to use you, that you'll find this. God will put opportunities all around you. You just have to pray, God, help me to take advantage of opportunities that are there. The L, of course, we're going to love people. As we talk about discipleship, there's really three things that are critical for discipleship to take place. One is we have to love people. Two is we need to communicate truth. We can't ever compromise truth, right? We don't want to water it down. We just say this is the truth. This is what the Bible says. This is, and, and we're going to not compromise the truth at any point. The third thing that has to take place is time. So love, truth, and time have to interconnect with each other, and those, that's what produces disciples over the course of time. So we're going to commit to loving people as Jesus would love them, and then we're going to commit to declaring truth as God would want us to do. One of the things that you're going to face as you live in the culture that you live in and as our culture becomes more post-Christian, which it's becoming, and there's no one that is arguing the fact that our culture is becoming more and more of a post-Christian culture, what you're going to hear more and more, is God good? Is God good? In some of my reading this week, I was reading some uh, of the atheists that, that, that uh, write it. And the article that was, I was reading was saying this, God is not good. And I think that is the basic thing that people are thinking today that are post-Christian people. It's why they're post-Christian. Because they have come to the belief that God isn't really good. You see that song you sang today, The Hurricane and the Tree? They don't believe that. Because they're going to say things like this, if God is good... How can they allow things like slavery? That's what this author wrote this week. And I thought it was kind of funny. It was an atheist writing saying, God is not good. If, if God was good, how could he allow slavery? Well, first of all, if he's an atheist, there is no God, right? So how can the what doesn't exist not be good? But what he did, he took the whole concept of slavery as you and I know it because of the culture and the world and the country that we live in, and he took that concept of slavery from America and he put it back into the Old Testament. And you can't do that. You have to look at the context in which it was given. But others say this, if God is good, then how can he allow bad things to happen to good people? 
you've heard that question. And, and the question is something, but as you hear the question and as you deal with people who ask this, you have to go down and say, let's layer down on it and let's realize that what they're doing is questioning the character and the nature of God. And it is very important for us as we're going to go out and this year in 2017, we're going to attempt to be bold and to see what God will do through all of us here at Mount Calvary. We have to understand that the primary thinking of people that don't go to church is God's, he's out there, it's not that they don't believe in him, but they just are convinced that he's just not a good God because he allows bad things to happen. For instance, Fort Lauderdale. How do you as an individual and you as a Christian explain someone walking into an airport, killing five people, and eight people end up in the hospital, six of them still in critical condition. How do you answer that as a Christian? Because they're going to say, how can God allow something like that to happen? One of those ladies was an 84-year-old lady on her way to a cruise to celebrate her husband's 90th birthday. She was a great-grandma. You tell me God's good? Really? How are you going to explain the goodness of God in that situation. And that's the philosophy that in a post-Christian culture you are beginning to deal with and you have to understand how do we as Christians minister, what do we say, and how do we show in this post-Christian culture that God is still good? Because this is important. Say, why is it critical? Because the goodness of God leads us where? The goodness of God leads us to salvation. And what our world does is they don't take out our salvation. They take out creation because creation leads to salvation. They take out God's goodness because God's goodness leads us to his salvation. So what you have to do is realize, layer down on this thing, it's not the Fort Lauderdale incident. It's how do we as a Christian show that God is good in the midst of circumstances like that in our world. That's a tough task. That is not for the faint-hearted. Because it doesn't look like God's good. It looks like he's not good. And that's what they're going to say to you. The reality is the first problem you're going to face is simply this. People want a God that approves their lifestyle. And in most cases, that's what we're going to be dealing with as we talk to people. They want a God that will approve their lifestyle. See? And as you go out and you begin to deal with stuff, you're going to find that people are wrestling with all kinds of things in our culture. Homosexuality is big transgenderism is big all of this is out there and what's happening in our culture today is we want a god but we want to be able to define that god and we want that god to approve my lifestyle so in other words i want to live the way i want to live but i need god to approve my lifestyle and the essence of that is really problem number two we want a god that we can keep in a box and the real issue here that comes at surfaces is this. 
I want to be my own God. I want to call the shots. I want to determine what's good and not good. I want to be able to say Fort Lauderdale was bad. And so I want to create a God that I can put into my own box and keep them there. And I can control life circumstances. Well, I want to tell you this morning that this God that we serve, Jehovah, uh, you can't get him in a box. And he won't approve of your lifestyle. And as they set out to find this God, you're going to read things in Scripture that really confuse you. Like, let me give you an example, if I can. In Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, it says this. It's talking about the nation of Israel, and he makes this statement. Paul makes it, and Paul comes and says this. Even though the Gentiles... Now, the word Gentiles in Scripture can be translated heathens. Okay? So these are the people that really wanted nothing to do with God, the heathen. Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And then you come to this statement, but the people of Israel who tried so hard to be right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Now wait a, now, now just stop and think for a minute. People that were heathen not seeking to know God, found him. And people that were doing their dead-level best to find him did not find him. And you want to tell me that God's good? Really? Explain that. That people with all of their heart all of their mind and all of their souls set out on a journey to find God and never found them. But people that weren't even looking for him found him and were made right with him. I would probably propose to you this. This isn't a God we're going to put in our box. And this is a God that we're not going to come to him and say, I'm going to live this way. I just need you to approve it. See what we're dealing with? And so I want to come to Luke 15, and I want to talk to you today about the prodigal God. Because that's really what Luke 15 is about. We usually say the prodigal son, but in reality, this story is about the prodigal God. The word prodigal means this. It means to expend resources lavishly. Just uh, dump them out. And I would propose that God is good because he lavishly pours out his grace on us. The story that you see in Luke chapter 15 is a story of three characters. The main character of Luke chapter 15 is the father. It's not the prodigal son, as we sometimes call it. The main character of this story is the father. And you're familiar with the story. He has two sons. This father living back in that day was a wealthy, wealthy entrepreneur. In most times in, in ancient Israel, when Jesus tells this story, this particular guy would have had many people that worked for him. He would have had fields, uh, vineyards, uh, wheat, different things, and he would have been responsible to run a, really, a corporation as we would think of it today, primarily in the, in the realm of farming. He owned it all. And he had half the town that lived around this place 
would work for him, and he, of course, would compensate them for their work. He has two sons. Two sons are part of the family. They're, without a doubt, going to succeed him and carry on the operation that he's, he's got. So these sons are interesting ones. And you know the story. The one son comes and says, hey, Dad, I want my portion of the inheritance. That's no small amount of money. It'd be like you being a child of Bill Gates. And you go up uh, to Bill Gates and say, hey, Dad, I want my portion of the inheritance. That's a chunk of change that you're going to get. And the graciousness of the father turns and gives it to the son. And you know the story. This son takes it, takes off, leaves home, and goes to a far country. And there he wastes it on prostitution among one of the things mentioned in our story today. And he just takes all of these funds and he just wastes them. It's kind of like watching those TV shows. You ever watch the TV shows about people that win the lottery? What happens to them? I love watching those shows. I don't know why it is, but most people that win the lottery end up wasting it all and end up nothing. And that's what this son does. He wasted, he squanders it so bad that living in a far country, he takes a task cleaning up pig pens, and as he's in the pig pens, he comes to a realization. He said, I'd be better off as a servant back on the plantation or the farm than I would be doing what I am right now. And he says, I have squandered it all. I have wasted it all. And he said, I have nothing left. I'm going to return. He said, and I'm going to be happy just to be a servant. I don't have to be a son. So he begins to make his way back to this father. And I want you to see in this story, and I'm going to go through this kind of quickly, I want you to see the forgiveness of the father. Because as you get into Luke chapter 15, it says this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. You know the story. He's a train wreck. Wasted it all. And comes to the realization, I need my dad, and I'm going back. As he begins to go back, I want to just show you this verse of Scripture, because this is one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. I think it's verse 20. It says this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There are five verbs in this verse. And this verse is a perfect picture of salvation in every way. And what I want you to know about this verse before we get into this a little bit is simply this. That this, what the Father does, goes against everything in the culture of that day. Everything. This 
verse is exactly the opposite of what a father in Israel who would have been in that father's position would have done. It goes counterculture in every way. No father would have restored him to the place of a son. He would have taken him back, possibly, doubtful. There's no way he would have ran to him. When, when these people that work for this man lived in this village and they see this father running through the village, it's like, no, these guys don't do that. What is going on here? But Jesus is telling a story and he's painting a picture here. But in this story and in this picture, what I want you to see from, from this passage and this particular verse is that while he was still a long way off, do you realize that was you? <laughs> Far from God? It says his father saw him. Kind of like what was it Isaiah said, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you that word know in the bible has the idea of this to be personally acquainted with and and what he's saying before his, his father saw him and as god looked out over the course of time and as god looked down the corridors of time he saw us he saw you and what he saw in you was a miserable mess that squandered everything that God had given to you, made a mess of it, even to the point of you squandered it on prostitutes. You say, I never got involved in prostitution. But if you break one law, you're guilty of what? Of all. You say, but that's as low as a person could get. That's us. That's us. Was it not the one author that said we are jars of clay? Or we are clay pots? You know what clay pots or jars of clay were, were used for in that culture? They didn't have bathrooms like we have bathrooms. They had clay pots. They had jars of clay. And he said, pause, he talked about this. He said, we are jars of clay. But God looked down through the course of time and God saw you. And what he said when he saw you, he didn't get upset. He felt compassion. The word compassion has its root in the word he, he, he loved you. And he loved you with an everlasting love and he loved you with an unconditional love. When he saw you, he loved you. And then it said, and he ran, he left heaven, he came to earth, he ran to get you. He didn't wait for you to come. Why? Because no one seeks after God. <laughs> no one seeks after God. There really is no such thing as a seeker. If you want to talk about a seeker, talk about God. He is the seeker of sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that passage, that comment right there, he ran what God runs toward people. When I drive home, I pass a, a, a Buddhist temple. It's an elaborate 
It's an elaborate thing. Beautiful. Out in the middle of a yard sits this, this guy. His arms are crossed over a big old belly, and he sits out there in the middle of the yard. And every time I go by, he's still sitting there in that yard. He never moves. He just sits there. Not Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save. He ran to you. That amazing? Gods don't run to people. Gods expect people to run to them. But I would contend with you that God is good because when we were in a sinful condition, when we were in a state just like this prodigal son, God ran toward us. And then it says, when he got to us, he embraced us. Oh, can you imagine a smell? He embraced the son came up and he put his arms around his son and then it says and he kissed them that verse right there is a picture of your salvation and god is painting in the story of the prodigal son he is painting the perfect picture of salvation in that verse the forgiveness of the father is this he sees him afar off he had love for him he ran to him he embraced him and he kissed them. And I want to tell you, it's exactly what God has done for you. Exactly what God has done for you. I want you to see the graciousness of the Father real quick in this story. I want you to see two things that take place. In verses 22 and 23, it says this, But the Father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Now, all the time this has taken place, you have to realize that there's an older brother. There's a younger brother who goes through all of this, goes out, squanders his millions, gets involved in his, his, with prostitution, and is at, is, is at the lowest point that a person could be when he comes to the realization, I'm a sinner, but I'm going back home to my father, and I hope he'll just make me a hired servant, and I'll be content if I can be a hired servant because at least I'll have bread to eat. The whole time that's taken place, there's this older brother over here that never squandered anything, never got involved with prostitution, did everything the father told him to do, was a hardworking son. And now this guy comes... And the father says, get the best robe. Now, you want to talk to me about a good God? You want to ask how God's good in that? The one who never squandered a dime and the one who squandered the millions... Which one are you going to give the best robe to? Which one are you going to give the best position to? You want to talk about the goodness of God? You see, those heathen who weren't seeking it found it. But those who sought it couldn't find it. And God's good? Wow. Are you kidding me? 
Get the best robe for the one who was involved in the prostitution. Get the one who was serving pigs and taking care of pigs. Then he says this. Put it on him. Put a ring, the signet. Letters in that day were a little bit different, or documents in that day were a little bit different. When they scroll, rolled it up into a scroll, they'd take, put that little piece of uh, putty on there and take the ring, and you didn't sign it, you know, sincerely yours, Paul. Put the ring. That was a symbol of everything the father owned And every aspect of his estate was all wrapped up in that signet ring. Put that ring on his finger. But dad, I never squandered any of this. You didn't put a ring on my finger. And then he says this, and sandals or shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat. And celebrate. You see, what he does is he restores the son to his family position. And he bestows all of the rights and all of the privileges on this son. And this guy over here, who never did anything wrong, watches all this take place and say, and that's a good guy? You wonder why the world hates Christianity? You wonder why when they, they can tolerate every other religious system out there, but they can't tolerate this one? Here it is, because the gospel is the most offensive thing there can be. It's offensive because it strikes at the very, it strikes at the very heart of man. It strikes at all of your hard work, all of your, but I, kinda, I try to do the right thing. I kept the law. I did this. I did that. I did all of this. Yeah. And I gave the ring, and I gave the best robe, and I killed the fatted calf for the one who did it all wrong. You wonder why the world hates Christianity? It's really easy to understand and see. But that's exactly what he does. He took this son, and he says, I'm going to restore you to your position as a son. You're not going to be a servant. You're a son. And I'm going to give you back all of the rights and all the privileges that you sacrificed when you went out and did that. I would call that a prodigal father, wouldn't you? Who lavishly bestows grace when it was undeserved completely. And that's exactly, as Jesus is giving this message, exactly what the Pharisees, the Pharisees, hey, we, we haven't sinned. We haven't run with prostitutes. We've tried to keep the law. We've tried to do our very best. And those that were seeking it didn't find it. But those people over here who were heathens, who were running with prostitutes, who were doing everything wrong, who recognized they were sinners, found it. I call that grace. You see, what this person who did it all right They just get their wages because they did what they were expected to do. But this one over here who did everything that was not expected, when he gets everything back, it's grace on the part of the father to give it. It's not wages. It's a prodigal God who lavishly bestows a position and all the rights and the privileges to that individual. 
But I want to take you, and I want to spend the rest of our time and talk about the part of the story that we very seldom talk about. I want to talk about the celebration. And this is what I really want to get across to you today, and I want you to understand why a feast. Because you could think this story could end right here, and it'd be a good story, but it doesn't end right here. It begins right here. And there's a part of this story that is very important for all of us in this room this morning to capture, to catch, and to understand, or we will miss something that's so important in the process of sharing and being bold and trying to share our faith and trying to show people that God is good. He's good because he invites us to the celebration. Now, I want you to watch this because it says in these verses in Luke chapter 15, look at verses uh, 24 and 25. It says, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and what? Let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And here's where you get. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and Okay. Go ahead, say it. Yeah, music and dancing. Why is that important? It's very important. It's very important. Because there was something verbal... And there was something physical. Okay? I need you to catch this concept. And I want you to see it. The next verse, in the end of the chapter, it says this, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and what? Be. It was fitting to celebrate and be. Glad. glad happy. Joyful. So there's celebration, there's a party going on, there's music and dancing, and there's celebrating and there's rejoicing. Why? For this brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. Isn't that amazing? Why does Jesus emphasize a celebration? Remember, the main character of this story is the father, so we're talking about God. The two sons just happened to paint a picture of who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. The person that doesn't get saved is the person who thinks they are keeping the law and trying to keep the law, not recognizing in reality they're a sinner. But the one who does get saved is the one who goes out and squanders his life, comes to the realization he's a sinner, comes back for the Father and asks forgiveness. This one finds it, this one doesn't. That's the essence of the, that's the picture the two sons paint. But when this person comes, the father throws a celebration. I'd like to give you a couple things of why a celebration. The first thing is this, because heaven celebrates when a person gets saved. In this chapter of scripture, in Luke chapter 15, if you notice, let me just show you this. Go back. There's two other stories in this chapter, which we didn't deal with today. But there's a story of the lost sheep. Notice what it says in verse number 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, 
there's rejoicing over this one prodigal son, realizing a sinner, comes back to the father and asks for forgiveness and asks to be restored, then there is over 99 of these other sons who do the right thing all the time and don't realize that they're really sinners in need of a savior. Heaven rejoices over the salvation of an individual. When you came to Christ, heaven had a party. Because there is rejoicing in heaven over the salvation of everyone. And when one comes, heaven celebrates. And one of the things that this festival is, this feast that he shows this party that's being thrown, and this celebration with music and dancing and celebrating and being glad, it's because heaven celebrates it. So we should, right? Second thing you see in this story is this, because salvation involves mind, body, and emotion. This is an important point. Believe it or not, this is a critical point. This is where so much breaks down right here. And and, and to, to give the theology with you, When a person is saved, every aspect of that person will be saved in time. Right now, let let me get you to think this. Let me go deep with you a little bit here. Let me get you to think this. You know where the Bible says absent from the body is to be? What is it that can't be present with the Lord yet? When you die, the promise is this. You will be in the presence of God except for your Yeah, we're going to take your body, and we're going to dress it all up so everybody can come by and say, don't he look good? You know how it goes. You've been there. You've seen it. But the truth is, when I look at the shell of that individual whose body is there, knowing this, that's only the shell that the individual lived in, that individual is with the Lord. Meaning this, your salvation is so thorough, it is so complete, that you can go into the presence of God right now except for your body because your body is still where sin dwells. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. So they have to take this body and they have to put it in a grave, but it's not going to stay in a grave. Someday Jesus is going to come back and the body is coming out. And body, soul, and spirit, or depending on your theological slant, material and immaterial, will go and be in the very presence of God for all eternity Mind, body, and emotion. And God calls us as a church. He says this. Let me tell you. Your mind, you have, when you become a believer, you have the mind of Christ. See? You are told to be joyful in the Lord. Be glad. Here's what's critical. When people come to church... What they have to have, our kids as they grow, there's two things that have to happen in a church for people to stay. One, what they they have to understand what they know to be true. Two, they have to feel it. And when knowing and feeling connect with each other, that's when a person, that's when a person is cemented. In other words, what I know and what I feel have to connect. That's why, let me just give you this example. That's why as we sing some of the newer songs, some of you older people struggle with it. You know why? Because it's not your music. 
It's the next generation's music, and it doesn't connect with you. What doesn't it connect? It doesn't connect with your feelings. It's not your music. But yet the young person are sitting over there. They like it. It's their language. And I'll say this to you again. When I was in high school, I grew up in the 60s. Remember the, some of you remember the 60s? In the 60s, everything was groovy, man, groovy. And when I say to you, groovy, man, groovy, you think, are you from another planet? No, I'm from the 60s. We had hippies, and we had all that good hippies back there. What were hippies? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. My dad wouldn't let me be one. <laughs> Remember bell-bottom pants when they came out? I came home and said, Dad, everybody at school's wearing bell-bottom pants. Can I get a pair? Yeah, that didn't happen. Because that's what hippies were. And that's how they talked. And out of that came, where do you think the whole Jesus movement came from? It was a way to connect with the hippies. And out in California, thousands of them came to Christ. Don't compromise the truth. But what you know and what you feel need to connect. That's why this is important. That's why this is important. The festival aspect of this, the party aspect of this is very important. Next thing I'll give you is this. Because salvation involves community. Why a festival? Because when you have a wedding, you invite as many people as you can afford to invite. You invite all your friends. You don't have a festival with just the bride and the groom sitting there and no one else. You invite everybody to come. And Jesus is inviting everybody to come. In fact, what he does to this older son is he walks outside the house and he goes to the older son. And he says, son, come on in and enjoy the party with us. Come on into the fe feast with us. And what you learn is the older son refused. You can read in a text. The older son refused to go in the house. But the invitation was extended for him to come. You see, Jesus wants all people to be saved. He's seeking and saving that which is lost. You just have to concede you're lost. And when, when you do, he says, come on in and let's celebrate and when we get to heaven someday, it's going to be a big feast. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. I just hope they don't serve lamb. I'm hoping more roast beef, you know what I mean? But it's going to be a big feast. It's going to be all of God's people from all of time gathered together, celebrating the Father who sent the Son and used the Holy Spirit to draw us. Guys, we're going to party. We're going to party hardy. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'll throw this into you. I, I came out of the Baptist. I've been a Baptist most of my life. And when we read that music and dancing, it didn't go over good. <laughs> uh, we don't dance. And I said, you're gonna. <laughs> You're gonna. And there won't be anything lustful about it, nor anything wrong with it. You're gonna be jumping up and down that you get to go to the feast and you get to be a part of God for all eternity and you get into his heaven. You're gonna be jumping up and down. Trust me, you're gonna be jumping up and down. 
when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and... Yeah, Baptists had a hard time with that one too. So that'll be interesting to hear them shout because they're going to shout. To give you the picture, it kind of looks like when you go, as I went the other week to an Eagles game, I was sitting there observing the whole thing with no interest to really ever go back because it's the world's worship centers and they know how to do worship. And I'm not suggesting we do this, but you know what? The two big things at the game, you watched the game and you drank and you drank and you ate and you ate and you ate. They were eating and drinking like crazy, cheering that they beat the Cleveland Browns. community. What this is this morning is a foretaste of that. We get to gather as God's people. What do we do here? We celebrate that God saved us. We realize mind, body, and emotion should have been involved in the service. That's why please, please, when you come in here and we sing, Don't just stand there like this and sing. Sing with all your heart. I'll give you my personal belief in this thing. I think what should happen if somebody comes to Mount Calvary Church that doesn't know Christ, we should never water down the truth. We shouldn't make it simple. But what they get to see, they get to see God's people celebrating God. And they get to hear the truth that God puts forth in his word. You say, that may be offensive. It's going to be offensive. But it should be the gospel that offends them. And only the gospel. But we need to say to them, you are a sinner. Your sin will cost you eternally. But there is a Savior who ran to you, who wants to embrace you and wants to kiss you. And wants you to come into his house because he wants you to come to the feast and he wants you to come to the festival. And what they should see when they come here is this is the happiest group of people they've ever seen on earth. And when we get to sing the praises of God, we just kind of get excited about it. Thank you. Or do we... We get to sing the praises of God. (laughs) Okay, I'm not saying get up and run around the auditorium. I'm not taking a lap around the auditorium, but I am saying this. Emotion should be part of what we do, and they should see our joy. They should see our love for God. They should see our love for each other. Because the truth is, what we want is this. We want them to know our Savior so that they can celebrate him with us. But when the church gathers like we gather here today, we are celebrating God, sending his son Jesus, who ran to us and grabbed us and rescued us in our sinful condition and said, come into my house. And I'm going to lavishly bestow upon you, I'm going to make you a son And I'm going to give you all the rights and the privileges of the Father. That is a radical God. That is a 
That is a prodigal God. And we ought to celebrate that. And that's what Sunday morning is. Do you get that? That's not the end of the sermon yet. Don't just so you know. You see, we're the ones that understand the goodness of God because the goodness of God led us to repentance. And we are the only place that they're going to hear God is good. (laughs) And he's good all the time. The last reason is because salvation is available to you. He goes to the older son, says, come into the house. And he comes to you and he says this, if you'll just concede you're a sinner, you can come to this party. And it's available to you. You may have come into Mount Calvary today and do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, or maybe you're still wrestling with this whole thing. The hardest thing you're going to wrestle with is coming to the realization that you're a sinner. That's the hardest part. But it's really not hard to understand because I just asked this question to you. Did your parents have to teach you how to lie? Do any of your parent, do any of you as parents have to teach your children how to lie? Do they already know how to lie? See, you were born in sin. Just need to concede it. No, your parents had to teach you not to lie. Your parents had to teach you to share. Your parents had to teach you to tell the truth. Why? Because you were born in sin. And you just need to recognize, I'm a sinner, but my sin is so offensive, it's, it's on the level with prostitution. That's how deep our sin is. And I just need to realize, I can't get into that house unless the Father says, come into this house. But I don't come my way. I can't put this God in my box, and I can't come and say, I'm living my lifestyle. No, i got to say, my lifestyle is sinful, and I'm going to embrace yours. And then he says, come on in. And when you come in, what you find out is, Yeah, he changes your life. Yeah, he changes your lifestyle. The songwriter said, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. Things I used to say, don't say them anymore. Place I used to go, don't go there anymore. But when God changes your lifestyle, I'll tell you this. He'll only make it better. He'll only make it better. And he says, come unto me. And you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you'll just concede your sinfulness, which is the hard part, come to Jesus Christ and say, can I come into your house? He says this, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Come on in. And when we get in, we celebrate. Is God good? Yeah, the end of the story is he gives a righteous, he gives a righteousness you could not earn, and it's available to those who will believe. That's a good God. God is good. He's good all the time. Get it? Good. That's the end of the sermon. <laughs> Let's pray together, shall we? God, it's a great story. It's the greatest story ever told. It's an amazing story. But then we come to realize you're an amazing God who saves sinners, and you saved us. Thank you.
We celebrate today your goodness because the goodness of God led us to salvation. And we're so glad that you did. I pray, God, you'd help us to be bold this year. Help us never to water down truth, but help us never to water down love either. And help us to trust the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts and lives of people that you're going to use for us to share the gospel with. And God, I pray that as we gather during the course of 2017 as a church, I pray that we would come to celebrate an incredible God. Yeah, we worship, we bow before you, but worship is also celebrating who you are. So we want to have the right balance of knowing what it means to bow in submission and to celebrate with great joy. And I pray that when people come into these services, what they would see was through our singing, through the display of all we do here today and what is seen here through the message that is communicated and the means of music by which it is communicated or speaking, that they would know and they would see that we are a people who love God, believe him to be a good God, because he's given us the opportunity to come to his feast. Thanks for this truth. Help us to be bold in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.